Welcome to The Capital Cyclist, a podcast from Hosking Partners that, like our investment team, goes anywhere and everywhere across the investment landscape. Please subscribe to stay up to date. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to The Capital Cyclist with me, Django Davidson, a podcast that looks at the world of investing through the lens of the capital cycle. On today's inaugural episode, we welcome my good friend and author, Ed Conway, to discuss his book, The Material World, a fascinating insight into the complexity of the stuff that underpins our modern and very comfortable lives. Ed, welcome to the inaugural Capital Cyclist podcast. It's a great privilege to be here. Thank you. This is our first podcast and it's our first session in the new office. Well, I like it. It's 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 a place I, that's inspiring, I can tell. Well, what better place than um, our library to pick over your fantastic book, The Material World, A Substantial Story of Art, Past and Future. Um, one of the ideas that resonated with me was your conception of the ethereal and material world. And as an investor, this struck a chord because the ethereal world populated by companies like Amazon, NVIDIA, is very sexy and exciting and glamorous. And the material world is kind of forgotten, um, but it's very much populated by companies we own, Ferroglobe, Antofagasta, unfashionable, but really important companies. I wonder whether you could explain to our listeners a little more this idea of the the ethereal and material and, and why you chose to yeah to focus on the material i mean I, I suppose it kind of started with the fact that i like i feel i i'm a denizen i of of the services sector of this of this intangible world where most of my existence and probably most of my friends and and counterparts um are also in that kind of world as well. We're dealing with ideas and we're dealing with thoughts and, you know, we're very well rewarded for doing that for the most part, although there's a whole spectrum of the services sector, of course, you know, all the way down to, you know, kind of services like, you know, taxi drivers, delivery, all, all of that. But the fact is that that accounts for such a large proportion of our, you know, employment in these developed economies that we are beginning to think, I think, that that's everything. And if you look at employment, you look at GDP, it's all basically, you know, services sector. And from that, one can delude oneself that the rest of it doesn't really matter. You know, hear government ministers talking about the digital economy, and it's all about the digital economy. Well, fair enough. But I think we all know instinctively as well that without the physical stuff, without the infrastructure, the backbone providing us with, you know, whether it's fiber optics or whether it's electricity or whether indeed it's energy, then we're in big trouble. And yet, to me, that didn't seem to be at all represented within things like GDP. It didn't seem to be represented in much of the kind of public conversation. And I think, you know, I went down this like uh, wormhole into discovering all these things I didn't know, certainly beforehand, about the way the world fitted together. And I kind of thought to myself, well, not only is this, is, uh, is it unappreciated, actually, it's far more interesting than you would have thought. And there's far more, you know, unexpected little little wormholes you get yourself stuck in when you're thinking about how you make things like silicon chips or indeed how you make chemicals that is inherently interesting so for me it started you know it wasn't this book was never supposed to be a polemic it was supposed to be just you know a story of the underbelly of the economy that we don't really kind of pay much attention to 
But as I kind of went on, I discovered not only was it fascinating and interesting and also quite inspiring because there's loads of innovation, there's loads of productivity that you see. And within the kind of ethereal world, you know, this this consensual world that, that many of us inhabit, you know, the consensus is that we are in secular stagnation, that there is no advancement, um, that, you know, they promised us flying cars and all we got was 160 characters. It's that kind of thing. But look into that other world where people are getting stuff out of the ground, making stuff with them, and you see extraordinary advances. You see stuff that is totally inspiring. You see stuff that is better than flying cars in practice. And why, I wondered, was that not being told? Why was that story not more widely appreciated? And then particularly when you add on the fact that by looking at the world from that perspective, from the bottom up rather than the top down, then suddenly you also have a new perspective on things like climate change. What are we going to do to resolve it? The energy transition. All of that stuff seemed to me to say, well, hang on, this is a really valid way of looking at the world. And one that seems unfamiliar at first, but then actually the more you delve into it, the more you're like, ah, so that's how it all fits together. And like you say, some of these companies, you know, I'd never heard of them. Uh, your clients will, I'm sure, have heard of more of them than I have. But it, there's just this whole universe of companies who are basically delivering the stuff we need. So my focus was not on Apple, you know, because obviously, as, as everyone will know, Apple's not really a manufacturer. You know, it's a great designer, great marketer and a great retailer. But it's not really a manufacturer. It was on the people who are making stuff for Apple. And it was on the people who are making stuff for the people who were making stuff for Apple. And it was the people who were making stuff that gets turned into the materials that goes into those factories where people are making stuff that then goes into the other factories. So it was like going all the way down and discovering, hang on, there's all these companies which matter enormously. I've never heard of them. I'm sure that most of my readers have never heard of them. So let's just, I guess, give them their moment in the sun. In the book, you take six materials and explain kind of the, the history of, of these materials, which is which is endlessly fascinating. And we could talk at length on all of them. Hmm. The, the material that really resonated with me and, and I know to a lot of readers has been the story of sand and silicon and how hmm. this extraordinary supply chain befuddles even the people in the supply chain. Could you yeah. give us a potted sort of overview of, of this? There's six materials in the book. Sand, salt, iron, copper, oil, and lithium. And and the sand chapter is actually the longest, quite considerably. It was it was far longer, I should have said, you know, when when, when I first wrote it, it got massively cut back. But of that I guess one of the things I always wanted to do from the start of the book, because, you know, like many of us, I've fiddled with my mobile phone and I use my uh, my kind of computer. And I've always kind of wondered where does the chip inside it actually come from? And I mean, not just the fabrication plants that we're, you know, quite familiar with. There's been some great literature and fantastic book, Chip War uh, by Chris Miller recently about how how those places work. But I just wanted to know, well, hang on. Literally, where did it begin in the ground? Because there's that old phrase, if it's not, you know, grown, it's mined. And basically, the vast majority of things that we touch on a daily basis are mined. And so I thought, well, where does the chip begin? And to some extent, I guess I was inspired, and have been for quite a long time, by that great essay, I Pencil, by Leonard Reed. It was a, like an economics essay that was in the 1950s. Milton Friedman made, made a lot of it. I'm sure that many, many of your listeners will have uh, read it. But it's that idea that, um, the, he describes, you know, from the perspective of the pencil, where it actually comes from, uh, you know, the wood from this particular forest, the graphite from somewhere else, and so on and so on and so forth. And it turns out it's one of the most complicated stories you could have imagined. And all for that simplest of all things, a pencil. 
Um, and also the other thing, I mean, the thing that Reed was obsessed with and also Friedman obviously was obsessed with was that there could be no architect. And, you know, that's significant. It was the market who was determining how the bits of the pencil came together. No single person in that supply chain understood how to make a pencil. And so I kind of thought to myself, well, that's fascinating. Now I know a lot about pencils. And I remember reading this years ago, because it's one of those great economics essays and thinking, I just want to know the same thing about basically everything, because it's fascinating. It's endlessly fascinating to understand how stuff is made. And I think we all have an appetite for that. And to some extent, that appetite has been suppressed by the fact that you can just order something off Amazon and it arrives in, you know, the next day. And just there it is. Partly because we don't make it, you know, we don't maybe have that access that we used to have to, to how we make stuff. So I always wanted to do the same thing for silicon chips. And clearly, in just the same way as the pencil supply chain is actually incredibly complicated, it was always going to be totally impossible to do every corner of the silicon supply chain. So it's not, it's not that. But what I do, and I think you know, others haven't really done this before, at least I struggled to find a full explanation, was I, I tried to explain the journey of a, you know, an atom of silicon all the way from the quarry. So not just that final stage of the fab or the design of the fab and various different other things, but all the way from the quarry through the different processes to go to the fabrication plant to become uh, the chip that we all you know, end up using. And what I hadn't expected, I guess, you know, I knew that there was fascinating stuff happening within TSMC. I knew about photolithography and just how amazing that, that is. And, and that's becoming a more widely accepted thing, ASML. You know, most people have now heard of ASML, which they hadn't maybe a kind of year or two ago um, within the wider spectrum of people. Um, but I just didn't want to just do ASML. I wanted to go all the way to the bottom. And actually that bit where you're taking something out of the ground and transforming it over a series of processes. So you're t you, you take that silicon. And th this was another thing that was I found quite striking. You know, a lot of people I was talking to who work in fabs, you know, senior people who work in, in some of these processor companies, whether in design or manufacture, you'd say, okay, well, where does the chip come from? They'd say sand. And, and actually, it turns out that's not quite right. It is silica, and it's something that can be turned into to sand. But it needs to be chunks, like solid, big, kind of cricket ball-sized chunks of silica, um, quartzite, as it's called, in order for it to, to work with the first stage of the process. So if you put sand into the electric arc furnace, which is what you're using to turn silicon into silicon metal. And that's a significant thing we should probably come back to. It's an electric arc furnace. You're smelting it. You're using coal. It, this, you know, to get silicon chips, to get, for, um, you know, solar panels, you need coal to do the initial stage of the process and a lot of energy further on. But still, we can come to that in a sec. But if you put sand into that, into that furnace, the sand would just, there would be convection currents and the sand would just float into the machinery and it would gum up the machinery and therefore you wouldn't be able to make, you know, metallurgical silicon out of it. So these kind of practicalities didn't really occur to people at the top end of the supply chain. But when you get down to the bottom end, you know, the really material world, I suppose, then you're dealing with people who are thinking constantly about getting stuff out of the ground, transforming it into something else. And then it goes through so many different transformations. By the time the silicon chip or the silicon wafer, so, so it, obviously it starts as quartzite coming out of the ground. You can literally get a hunk of it and put it in your hand. Not dissimilar to the stuff that goes into marble tabletops or, or you know, kind of tabletops, uh, work surfaces and kitchens. By the time it's got to the fabrication plant where it's become a silicon wafer, it has probably been around the world a few times. Uh, it's been transformed completely from this kind of strange, 
amalgamous, almost organic kind of thing, fragment that comes out of the ground, not organic technically, but you know, something that's just a, a hodgepodge of different atoms with lots of impurities into literally the most perfect thing that humankind has ever made, almost certainly, or certainly the most perfect thing we've ever mass produced. Because not only is it 99.9999999, I think it's, it's 10 nines you need to get to to get a kind of semiconductor grade uh, polysilicon. Not only is it being trans kind of transformed in an elemental stage, so you basically don't have any impurities as far as, you know, further than any other thing that we have in the in, in the planet, pretty much. But you're also changing the atomic structure into something that is perfectly crystalline. And that I just didn't have a clue about. I didn't understand how magical that was. And I think it is magical. And we're going through all of these processes, and it's a kind of three, four stage process to get to even before you get to the fabrication plant, to take something out of the ground, turn it into something literally perfect, literally perfect, which only then can go into your TSMC and you can have your photolithography and you can use your ASML machine. So you, you have this web, this extraordinary web of complexity and amazing stuff for the bit that everyone takes for granted, you know, the silicon wafer, that virgin wafer that goes in, um, and yet there is so much innovation that has gone into that by then. And also let's worth noting here that China may be a massive leader when it comes to solar panels and they're a big leader when it comes to polysilicon. Um, they are still struggling to get that super, super pure polysilicon that you need then to turn into the silicon chips, you know, the really kind of 10 nines as it's called polysilicon. And again, the fact that they are finding that so difficult underlines that this stuff is tricky and it's hard and it's important. And these companies matter enormously because the rest of the world totally depends on these supply chains. And we learned that when it came to COVID. What it didn't seem to spark is a curiosity about delving down deep into that supply chain. So that's the, you know, one of the things I've tried to satisfy in this book is with as many of these things as possible, I wanted to go to the quarry or indeed where we kind of get it out of the ground and say, Here's the way that we're transforming this stuff, the hunk of rock that you can hold in your hands and change it into something that completely transforms the world. Interesting that so much of this activity happens in China. Could you, could you talk a little bit about China's role in the material world? And yeah. maybe I'm leading the witness here, but what is China's role and, and what energy is China using to, yeah. to fulfill this role in the material world? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a really good question because in a sense, you know, the shadow protagonist of the whole book is, is China. You know, China in, in pretty much all of these spheres is, is, is pretty dominant. Not all of the place. I mean, interestingly, you know, one of the striking things about iron is despite having put so many billions, hundreds of billions potentially into their iron ore sector, they are still enormously reliant, you know, totally reliant really on Australian iron to turn into steel. So there's some areas where resources and what you actually have are a genuine limitation. But in so many of these different areas, you know, chemicals, look at chemicals, um, look at what's happening in uh, in lithium-ion batteries. You know, China is an enormous leader. And I think, I think to some extent, that's because you know, this conception of the material world clearly is just, you know, it's conceit, obviously. But thinking in these terms, you know, thinking from the bottom up, thinking about supply chains, thinking about dependence of, you know, on other countries... That's been China's thing for a long time. You know, they've been thinking strategically about the nature of their industrial sector for a very long time and focusing on this stuff. And we've only started to think about it quite belatedly recently. 
And the upshot is that in certain areas, in particular batteries, but also solar panels and you know, quite a lot of this stuff, frankly, you know, look at the blades of wind turbines or even quite the, the high tech stuff that's the gearing that's going on inside the, the nacelle, the, the, the top bit of the wind turbine. You know, quite a lot of that stuff is, is made in China now because they're good at it. But it's part, not just because they're good at it. It's not just because of labor costs being low. It's not just because of expertise. And there is certainly a lot of expertise, particularly when you look at lithium ion batteries, particularly when you look at things like LFP chemistry. So, you know, that is the biggest rising bit of the battery sector. But it's not all of that. It's not just all of that. It's cheap energy as well. And it's subsidized energy in part. And it's quite dirty energy. And there's a lot of coal that's being used to make the, these things. And that is a big dichotomy between uh, the West and, and, and China, which is that they don't seem to have shared the same concerns that we you know, understandably do about the carbon emissions coming from things like coal, because it's really dirty stuff, and particularly the stuff they're burning in China, although you know, Germany as well, frankly. It's dirty, but it is cheap. Ed, you've introduced this conceit of the ethereal and material worlds. I wonder whether we could introduce a similar idea of the carrot and stick as regards um, green policies in, in the West. The, the, the US has mm. got this fantastic carrot called the Inflation Reduction Act that's driving the reindustrialization and reshoring of many of these Chinese-dominated um, processes to, to the States. In the UK and Europe, we, we seem to have a much less successful approach to these industries, which and, and we employ the stick of you will be net zero by mm. whatever date, um, uh, by, by 2050. How do you think about that? Are we just moving our carbon emissions to China? Or are we just making, mm. you know, taking efficient processes in the West and making them more efficient and more and less energy efficient in, in China? How should we think about that? carrot and stick approach to yeah well it's not i mean like i suppose it's not as simple as us us outsourcing all of our emissions because we are at the same time we're getting we're getting more efficient but the both things are happening at the same time we're deindustrializing and we're buying stuff from abroad and frankly it's a bit murky as to how much the carbon emissions you know embedded in that stuff that we're getting from from china really are hopefully that data will improve but we don't really know very well so um that's a part of it I mean, I was struck with the Inflation Reduction Act. I was struck, first of all, by how massive it is. You know, it's it's not, it's, there's no ceiling on it. You know, it's demand-led. So I suppose by, by, by the same extension, if there's not much demand, it could be much smaller than 300 billion or so. But it's also quite plausible looking at some of the numbers we've seen so far. Like, you know, I was looking at Panasonic's numbers. I think they had taken... $300 million in maybe a quarter or something. Um, but like crazy, crazy numbers just from one company. Um, so the scale of it is massive. It could well be a trillion dollars potentially for all we know. And there are legitimate questions about how affordable that is. Um, but there are, the thing aside from the scale, um, you know, I, I, I kind of, I was really struck by it when it happened. I was really struck. So I went to Davos. Unfortunately, this is where I throw in my Davos when I was in Davos kind of thing. But when I went great to Davos, with great people. It's, 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 I've just got to go. It's part of my job, unfortunately. Uh, but no, it's a really interesting place. And what you do, what you do sometimes get there is a sense of the kind of zeitgeisty thing about what's going on. And the interesting zeitgeisty thing I picked up was everyone was talking about the Inflation Reduction Act back in, in January. Yet, when I raised this with you know, for instance, various ministers who will not be named in UK government ministers, they were very sniffy and, you know, dismissive about it. 
they were like, well, it's good that America's finally catching up. And I, I think that the problem is that mistakes one side of it, which is the have kind of... Have they caught up or have they got ahead of us? Well, that's the thing. There's two sides to this. There's the demand side of it and trying to encourage people to use more renewable power. And I think they're the UK and and Europe, th- thanks in part to those, to those deadlines, has been pretty quick to say, listen, we want to shift our power consumption across. Um, and we've got a lot of offshore wind, for instance, in the UK, are loads. But the industrial side of it, you know, are we going to make the stuff that then gives us the green energy? On that side of it, we're kind of nowhere. And, and I think that's the concern that I have, which is that, first of all, by relying on someone else, you're not able to control or have much insight into how green those processes are. Secondly, I happen to think, and I think that you know, you you know, you will think if you read the book that we are living through an industrial revolution at the moment, and and the the misconception about the industrial revolution, the Victorian one, is that it was just you know coal or it was just steel. It was it was so many different things. You know, it was a chemicals revolution at the same time. We were inventing or reinventing cement. There were so many different of these processes. And it just turns out that all of this stuff is basically really carbon intensive and you need to reimagine all of it in order to, to, to kind of get to net zero. So we are living in that industrial revolution right now. And if you're living through an industrial revolution, you know, that's a big opportunity economically. And so it was surprising to me that we, we're not trying to seize that or talk more about that in this country, at least in the UK. And I think to back to your question, deadlines, I mean, Ideally, you want to be able to incentivize people to do things without having to beat them with a stick. The real concern that I have about this, so take the UK's 2030 um, petrol deadline. So by 2030, you can't sell petrol cars, uh, new petrol cars anymore. 2035, it's hybrids. And it's similar in, in Europe, it's just, it's just the 2035 thing. In order to get to that, okay, we're going to have to have a lot of electric cars and we're going to have to start buying them now because, you know, the life of the car, people start thinking about this stuff already. Where are those cars going to come from? Right now, they're not coming from Europe because Europe has not got its act together, frankly, on batteries. It's not got its act together on the cathode active materials you need in those batteries or the anodes or the separators or the electrolytes. Like, you know, again, this is not just when you look at the material world, you see that it's not just batteries per se. The battery is just an assembly point for all this other stuff. Um, and it's also the minerals that go inside them. We are still a long way behind on all that stuff. And there just hasn't been, as even in Europe more widely, the UK even further behind, frankly, uh, which, which, by the way, I think is a bit of a, I think, great tragedy because we had certain industries and certain plants in this country that could have been good on electrolytes. You know, we had one of the, the, the plants with the most potential for making battery electrolytes in Europe, in this country. It's in the process of shutting down. It's in the process of shutting down. It's a Mitsubishi plant in Billingham. Um, we have a really great place making coke that goes into the anodes. It becomes battery graphite, which goes into the batteries. Um, but because it's an oil refinery, government ministers don't want anything to do with it. Um, so we have all of this and great potential for separators. We could we could have done this stuff, but like you know Marlon Brando, we could have been contenders. It doesn't look like we are, we are now. But the broader concern is. Because we're not making this stuff, we need to buy it from somewhere. Where are you able to get the cheapest cars right now? It's China. And I don't think people are quite aware of the fact that this is happening now. So even in the SMMT data, I haven't, I haven't yet seen What's them. Uh, the, sorry, the, the Society for Motor Manufacturers. It's, it's the lobby group. for They're, they're the ones who do car data, uh, the most reliable stuff. I don't think they have 
ever press released this. I don't know if it's even come out in their data, but I was looking at the the exports and import data for the UK just, just the last few days. And China has now overtaken France, Japan, Belgium, every other company, uh, every other country but Germany to become the second biggest provider of imported cars to the UK. So China is now massive and it's gone from basically being nothing. And how's it done that? It's all electric cars. It's Tesla's. So if you have a Model 3 and you didn't buy it in 2019, then it will have been made in China. If you've got a Model Y, probably it's made in China, but there's a chance it might have been made elsewhere. So all those Model 3s we're seeing on the road right now, those are Chinese cars. Now, obviously, and, and also MGs and a few other cars. Now, there's nothing wrong inherently with a Chinese-made car. And there's no point, you know, one shouldn't be you know, xenophobic about this at all. However, one should be conscious of it because there's an industrial strategy question about whether we need to start be building these industries ourselves. And then also, you know, the, the diplomatic noises around China are not very encouraging right now. And that, that's kind of relevant, isn't it? So if we are becoming completely reliant on, or very reliant on Chinese cars, and cars are a really important part of our world, and also we have a car industry and what's going to happen to that, then that's significant. And there's a story in the book, which I won't kind of go into in great length, but it goes back to World War One, where we ran really short of binoculars. And for a moment, it looked like, you know, the war was in doubt because we didn't have enough binoculars. And where did those binoculars come from? And they we came... needed the binoculars to, to, to range the artillery. You need Exactly. So this was the first, your, your artillery was able to go further than human sight. So suddenly this was the first war where binoculars and lenses actually mattered. You know, it was, binoculars were the semiconductors of their day in some senses, those optical lenses. And we relied for Ger on Germany for 60% of it. And I think that's, you know, maybe that's a little bit of a scary analogy, but it's worth just having in the back of one's head because our reliance on China for so many of these different materials and substances and products is greater now than our reliance was on Germany. And I don't know, it's, it's, mm. we, sh we, sh we should be conscious of that, shouldn't we? I, I think so. I mean, it feels like we, you know, under this rather simplistic ESG 1.0 era, we, we didn't really fix the problem. We just sort of moved it yeah. um, in terms of yeah, moving we, all of our production to... We in the UK, we've we've got our carbon emissions have fallen faster than almost every other G7 country. But it's worth saying, you know, part of that is definitely down to improvements in economy. Part of that is the fact that we have, you know, much more generation that's, that's green. But as you say, the other side of that is never talked about. And if, unfortunately, you know, it's the same thing. I, I talked about this quite recently, this, this point about, hang on, 2030, the deadline, we should also be thinking about the industrial strategy thing. We should also be thinking about our reliance on certain countries. But the problem is that a lot of people would say, ah, well, you're just, you know, are you saying that deadline should go? Are you a denier? All of this. And unfortunately, the debate, which should be about a gray area, it should be about rational thinking, has become unfortunately a bit more infused with... Mm. Green is good, brown is bad. Yeah, it's kind of demonizing people and, and looking to win arguments rather than to actually think what is the right thing to do. Ed, so we've touched on this rather simplistic ESG 1.0 era being being reimagined and hopefully more nuanced and, and America leading the way with the IRA. Um, another cycle that, that we see turning is the capital cycle in many of these industries. And um, maybe we'll just remind listeners that the way we look at the world is through this lens of the capital cycle. And very simply, you know, the more capital that goes into a sector, all else equal, the lower the, the returns and vice versa. And many of these industries have been starved of capital. So mining capex is is at its lowest in 30 years. Um, energy capex is its lowest in about 15 years. So many of these, you know, critical 
materials, um, critical energy inputs to all of the um, um, substances you outline in in your book are underinvested, and and that's that's really interesting from an investment perspective, but it's quite challenging from a from an energy transition period. Um, you know, one of one of the ways that your book has helped me think about my kind of investment process is the ethereal world is very overinvested. The market capitalizations, the valuations of these companies are very high, and the material world is in large part very underinvested. And it sounds like from a from a policy perspective, you'd agree with that. Why I think that's interesting and relevant is that if you take a company like Microsoft, which has a market cap, you know, approaching three trillion US dollars, you know, it's nearly double the valuation of all of the energy companies in the S and P combined. So you have very high valuations in the ethereal world and very low valuations in the material world, particularly in energy and oil. And, and why that's important is that if we're going to do an energy transition, which we all are, we're all on this journey, you need a surplus of energy. You have to have a lot of energy to build wind turbines and solar panels that have, you know, a long energy payback, a, a concept you, you reference mm. in the book. I know that you've read Capital Account, but d- does this sort of capital cycle approach of looking at the material and ethereal worlds resonate? And on your journey into the material world, were you were you conscious of this sort of unfashionable? Um, totally. Yeah. Uh, and h- how can we change? Ch- it's how can very we, unfashionable. How can we change that? All these all these companies are really unfashionable, and um, or many of them. I mean, you know, like TSMC is actually quite fashionable now. ASML is pretty fashionable now. But there's still a depth of other companies which 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 are not. I like look at look at kind of gas prices. One of the striking things to me is when you talk the conventional wisdom now is why are gas prices high? It's because or well, they're not high anymore. But why did they go high? It was because of Putin. It was because of Ukraine. Well, what people forget, particularly in policy making circles who I talk to, is that they were really high before, and it wasn't just because people were worried about Russian troops massing at Ukrainian border. There were all sorts of other factors, one of which that looked, when you look at pretty any metric of investment, then there was underinvestment in gas. And there had been this kind of overhang of, under, if you can say an overhang of under, underinvestment for like a long time. And, you know, if we weren't putting enough money into this sector, which turns out to be incredibly important for the transition, not just important for fueling the world. And one of the things I'd be, I was struck by doing this book, so I started it and I was, I was obsessed with the materials. But then as I wrote it, I realized, well, hang on, energy is everywhere. You know, this is actually a book about energy just as much as these materials, because it's about turning one simple substance into something extraordinary. And doing that involves enormous amount of, you know, sometimes thermodynamic, sometimes electrical. It involves massive energy, uh, sometimes chemical. And so energy is is a core part of our existence as a civilization. It is right at the heart of it. Without it, we're we're gone, and that's and that goes not just for for the obvious stuff for the you know chapter that I've got on oil and gas, uh, but also for everything else as well. And so, if we are under investing in energy, then we are inherently going to be under equipping ourselves with the ability to actually deliver this transition. Mm. And I think one of the things that you know this is more like a pet thesis than anything else, but I do wonder whether it's coincidental that. You know, we look back, and a lot of people look at the you know secular stagnation, productivity, the disappointing outcomes that we've all had. 
And they chart it back to maybe kind of the 80s and they say this is a long run trend and we've had disappointing growth for quite a long time. Um, I do wonder, that was the period when you had the US kind of starting to turn away from this idea of energy plenty. So not long ago, I mean, I say not long ago, like 1950s, 1960s to some extent, people were talking about it being soon, energy soon being too cheap to meter. You'd have so much nuclear power, you'd have so much you know, energy that essentially it would cost nothing. And if you look at each of the transitions that we've had and look at the industrial revolutions, we've got much wealthier as energy has got more plentiful. You know, we've mm. gone from wood to coal, energy became more plentiful, we could do more stuff with it. You know, so you had the electricity era, we could do more stuff with it, you could get it into places where it couldn't previously go. And then, you know, nuclear power as well. But the 70s seemed to be this period when the US and Europe started to turn away from that. And productivity became, the you know, what we saw as productivity became not so much about doing more with more energy, you know, it didn't become, you know, it was less about let's make an amazing supersonic jet and we'll think about the cost of fueling it later. It became all about the cost of the fuel, partly because of things like the oil price shock and all of the, all of the things that we knew that happened. At the same time, you had some terrible nuclear accidents in that period. Add it all up and it did seem that we went from, you know, wanting to see energy go up and up and up and up to a period where we wanted to see our, you know, our ability to economize energy going up. So the amount of energy we had was going down. And I just want, I do wonder to some extent whether our ability to generate extra value, you know, that that seemed to kind of diverge at about the same time as our use of energy diverged as well. Um, so I kind of feel increasingly, you know, perhaps in a slightly unscientific way that energy is absolutely at the core of everything we do. And if we're underinvesting in energy, particularly in you know an energy source like like gas, which yes is a, is is a source of big carbon emissions, but is significantly less than coal, um, then that's troublesome because we need to get there. That's the point. You know, no one no one disagrees that there is potentially this goal that we might be able to get to in the future, and it looks you know pretty plausible if you think about certain things. You know, and if you hope that um, certain things like green hydrogen work out. No one disagrees that there is this kind of shining place on the hill that we, we hope we get to. But how you get there is actually pretty important. And if you're able to get there with quite a lot of cleaner energy coming from gas rather than stuff coming from coal, then that would matter quite a lot. So the fact that we in the West are potentially reducing the investment we're doing in gas, while China has got you know, still using enormous amounts of coal to make the stuff mm. that's allowing us to get to this transition, is I find quite troublesome. You know, gas, if, if China were to convert instantly from all of its coal to gas, then I think almost overnight, you'd be in line to hit some of those COP goals. That's like just through gas. And by demonizing all fossil fuels, you know, I can understand why people are doing it because they feel very passionate about it. And the goal is, again, like I say, a goal that is shared by many. But by lumping it all together, and not thinking about how we're going to get the energy to make the wind turbines and the solar panels that we need. There is a worry that that shoots us in the foot because it makes it much more expensive to do it and potentially much more difficult to do it and means we rely much more on places like China, which are using coal anyway. So this it, it's, not, it's not kind of rational joined up thinking that we're approaching this with at the moment. I feel that the the debate on ESG is moving and, and may well have already turned. I think 27 mm. US states now oppose ESG investing frameworks for their 
public plans. We're starting to see a much more thoughtful approach to some of the carbon um, uh, exclusion policies that some of the major investors have. Uh, an interesting contribution to this debate recently published by the Yale School of Management by um, Hartzmark and, and Shu was this idea that by skewing capital towards low carbon companies, those who inhabit the ethereal world, and skewing capital away from brown for bad firms, you know, high carbon firms, you actually reduce the incentive of brown firms to improve. They have lower valuations. If you have a low valuation, why would you invest in your your own company? You would just give the share the shareholders back the the, the low valuation. Uh, you know, the cash flows that are valued at a this low. This is the capital cycle, isn't it? This is. And so, if 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 we if we what is interesting about the capital cycle is that it can be self-correcting, which is to say that. If we continue to underinvest in energy, the price of energy, all else equal, will go up. Less energy, um, uh, everything gets tougher. Everything gets tougher. So one of the things that is is happening alongside, I think, this uh, more nuanced approach to ESG is a realization that this decades-long underinvestment in the material world is going to lead to all else equal higher prices. And what's fascinating about that is that. These companies that are misunderstood, that aren't very sexy, are actually on very low valuations. And I think one of the key takeaways I get from from your book is just the extraordinary opportunity in many of these absolutely critical mineral and energy providers. Um, mm-hmm. I know in, the investment remit is is not is not is not yours, but from a sort of public policy pers- perspective. Giving you know this this idea of the carrot and the stick, the the carrot to me seems a much more sensible way to use incentives to promote better behaviour from uh, so called brown mm. industries than than the um, than the stick, which as you point out, you know is is causing you know massive changes in our industrial supply. Mm. Um, you know uh, the, the the EV stat is, is is a fascinating one, but it's worth saying as well um, that you know part of what distinguishes the U.S. policy at the moment from the European policy is that Europe, the U.S. is doing it also with enormous amounts of fracked gas and oil. You know they have energy plenty, which is helping them to fuel this transition, whereas Europe is trying to do both things at the same time, so reduce its kind of you know its emissions. Uh, have less in the way of kind of oil and gas exploration. So that's 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 a paradox. But yeah, back to those you know what you call brown companies. I, I the thing is that probably that's where much of the expertise lies in trying to change these processes which are massively carbon intensive into ones that are less carbon intensive. So for instance, in order to make a wind turbine, you need lots of carbon fiber at the really kind of toughest points. It's really important. And where does carbon fiber come from? It, it comes from a whole series of different chemicals, one of which is called acrylonitrile, which most of those chemicals come, some of them come from salt, by the way, but most of them come from oil and gas. Okay. And right now, there is no other way of making acrylonitrile without using oil and gas. Um, however, INEOS, you know, a company which is very much not popular amongst you know those who who don't like uh brown companies again potentially for understandable reasons and there's there's you know some some tax controversy as well but even so Ineos is the former um ICICI yeah exactly I, uh, uh, so it's Jim Ratcliffe has bought a lot of the kind of basic chemicals bits of ICI 
and has and has actually got other you know has now bought kind of quite a few other companies within within Germany. But it's it, it was all the unfashionable stuff, you know, the dirty refineries and things. But they now are they've come up with quite an interesting breakthrough for making much lower carbon acrylonitrile. And you know there are, there are some question marks over whether you know how they're doing it. But even so, these are the kind of leaps we need if you know we are in this new industrial revolution. You need people like that to work out how to make carbon fiber without emissions. You need people like I don't know the makers, current makers of metallurgical sil- silicon, to work out how to get furnaces that don't rely on coal in them because they are much more likely to be able to do that than outsiders. It's possible that outsiders could do that, but we should be encouraging everyone to try uh, to do it. And yeah, much more of the carrot will enable people to do that. And the, the great thing I think about IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is that it's quite agnostic about the particular technology you're going to be using to get to this goal. It just wants mm. green hydrogen that isn't, you know, that has the lowest amount of carbon emissions. It doesn't care about how you get there. And so all of this stuff that's quite religious about we must do it this way, we must do it that way, that stuff melts away in America. And that seems like quite a functional way of doing it. Whereas in Europe, it's all about this rule and that rule and so on and so forth. The book does a terrific job of explaining how many of these materials have really enhanced the lives of everyone on the planet. When we think about the energy transition, which is implicit in many of in much of your writing, um, how should we think about this pretty stark statistic, which is that half the world's population consumes about an eighth of the energy that we in in the developed world consume, and you know, presumably they will want to have the fridges and air conditioning units that that we all uh, that make our lives comfortable. As these guys move up the energy consumption chain, we're going to need a huge surplus of energy. Um, that sort of puts the whole uh, kind of net zero religious aspect to some of these energy transition um, ideas in, in context. Have you have you given that idea any any thought? Completely. I mean, I think it's the big thing, and it's where I struggle a bit with the kind of degrowth arguments, um, this idea that a lot of, you know, some economists have that that we should all just be consuming less and there should be less GDP. I think to some extent, I can understand that in, in developed economies where we have quite a lot already, but but what about the rest of the world? You know, why? who are we to say that other people aren't, shouldn't be allowed the standard of living that, that we all have in, in, in the West? The, the analogy I like on this, and it's, it's totally, it's totally analogous, it's totally analogous to what you've just pointed out about energy that that is really interesting is about steel because I think one of the best ways you get a sense of the development of different economies is by looking at how much steel they have per capita and why it's just because steel embedded in your life whether it's like the car that you're driving or the the, the train line you're using uh, or the infrastructure in the office that you go to uh, or even the steel that's in there in the reinforcement in a hydroelectric dam put all of that stuff together and it's quite a good kind of um, representation of how developed an economy is, how well off it is. In the West, you know, in Europe and in the US, we have roughly between 10 and 15 tonnes of steel per capita. So you and I, everyone listening, you have about 15 tonnes of steel in your life. So in your car, you know, maybe you've got a couple of cars, that's, that's a couple of tonnes already. And then you're talking about the steel that's in, you know, the London Underground and everywhere else, uh, hospitals, schools, steel, steel, steel. Um in places like China, so middle income, you're talking about maybe, the, the numbers vary, but maybe kind of like six, seven tons per capita. In sub-Saharan Africa, it's under one ton per capita. 
Okay, so there's a massive steel inequality and you see that. These are people who don't necessarily have cars, who don't have the infrastructure, who don't have hospitals, who don't have schools, and they will want these things, of course, and they deserve these things and they deserve the standard of living that we have. Now, steel, obviously, making steel, there is no way of mass producing steel right now, virgin steel, which you need for, given that we're going to have to increase the amount of steel we have in the world so that people have all of these you know, hospitals and schools. There's no way of doing that without uh, carbon emissions right now. Maybe there might be in the future, but right now it's really expensive. Hydrogen, uh, DRI, you know, direct reduced iron. All of this stuff is really kind of early stage. So there's a lot more people billions of people who will need much more steel. They will need much more energy, to go back to your point, in the coming years. Who are we to say they can't have it? Who are we to determine the cost at which they're going to have to pay for that stuff? Mm. I think that's really naughty and I think that's really difficult. And it's bound up in these ambitions that we're setting ourselves. The UK is piddling in comparison with most other countries when it comes to this stuff, but we can set an example. But that being said, we've got the steel we need. We've got it, you know, over over hundreds of years of industrialization, we have the standard of living now that most of us need. Of course, we all there's still inequalities and stuff. But I think that is one of the toughest issues that we're going to face in the coming years, because for a lot of people, it's about survival. You know, it's about having a more clean environment that they're going to live in. It's about having hospitals and schools. Mm. You need steel for that and you need energy. And you need you need energy. One of the most revelatory moments in in my career was um, three years ago. A potential client came in, and we were talking about ESG. And um, the client was uh, was an African based client. And when we started talking about energy, they made it very clear that their primary goal was low cost energy in order mm. to um, in order that their their plan members could get to work cheaply could get to schools cheaply and they made it very clear that it when when oil prices rose when petrol prices were high their children couldn't afford to go to school and it really put into context a lot of the debates that we have a lot of the very complicated um, carbon-based um, discussions we have that uh, ultimately drive up the the costs associated with financing energy companies. It really put that into context, and I realised, wow, this is a much more complicated. We're debate. quite insular. We're mm. quite insular, I think, in in the, a lot of this debate in in Europe, uh, to some extent, the US as well. But I that's that's problematic because we need to think about the, about the whole piece. And again. I think you start to get that perspective. That steel analogy was one that, I, that that resonated for me because then it's like, well, hang on, yeah, we we've got this stuff, we got it. You know, that's the fruit of of, of decades, if not longer, of plenty and of cheap energy. You know, because we had a lot of cheap energy that that fueled the industrial revolution. A lot of coal, really good coal in the UK, was one of the things which gave us that leg up and helped us towards industrialising. So yeah, who are we to deny other countries? access to what we once had. I think that's pretty profound. Ed, it's been a fascinating discussion and a lot of complex ideas and thoughts have been discussed. If we were to simplify the book um, into a few ideas, what, what, are the, what are the ideas that you would like people to, to take away from, from Material yeah. World? I mean, so, so yeah, no, thank you for having me to to, to talk here, um, and, it's, and it's, it's it's exhilarating to be able to talk about this stuff because I partly because it's just it is I just think it's inherently fascinating this 
this world that I'm trying to describe. It's the most interesting thing I've ever looked at. And I've been lucky enough to kind of cover plenty of interesting stories in the past. But my hope, this this book was never intended to be a, like a polemic. It's not, it isn't really a polemic if you read it. It's not, I hope it will be embraced by people of all views and, you know, left, right, the whole thing. Because it's really just to some extent a manual on this unfamiliar side of the world, a little introduction to it um, that we never really kind of pay much attention to at the moment. Um, and a lot of the book is really just saying, well, here's how the world works. You know, you can draw your own conclusions. Um, some of it is, you know, potentially quite depressing. And, you know, a lot of what we've been discussing is frustrating stuff. But there's also inspiring stories in there at the moment as well, because, you know, it is inspiring that we are turning, that we are creating nanotechnology that everyone has in their pockets. And they don't think about it. You know, this for me is the amazing thing about things like silicon chips, about the chip that's in your iPhone and all of your devices. It is one of the most extraordinary, amazing things that humankind has ever achieved. We are making stuff that has features that are smaller than the wavelength of visible light. That We are making features that are literally invisible. You know, we make stuff that is invisible, that's smaller than a coronavirus, you know, smaller than a virus, a hundred times or a thousand times smaller than red blood cell. We make this stuff every day. And yes, we're not making flying cars, although we could probably make flying cars. But the difference between this and something like Concorde, so Concorde, and I make this point in the book, Concorde was, is seen by a lot of people as this iconic moment of the greatest human achievement, industrial achievement, but by some people. But that was something that was only accessible to 0.01% or lower of the population. Whereas we make nanotechnology today. We make the most perfect thing that humankind has ever made, a structure, and then imprint nanotechnology with features that are literally invisible onto it, using lenses that are flatter than anything that humankind has ever created. And it goes into the pockets of billions of people billions of people. And so the world is an amazing place and we do amazing things, particularly in the material world side of it. I just hope that this book reminds people of the great stuff that we can do, but also, you know, the challenges we're facing. And once you start to look at the world from the bottom up rather than the top down and see these materials, see where we get them out of the ground, see what we do to them and understand also the carbon emissions along the way, then you start to think, okay, so that's something we need to think about when it comes to net zero. That's something we need to think about. We need to think about where it comes from. We need to think about what the consequences are for our families, but also our countries. I hope that it opens people's eyes to that. And I hope that it does it. I hope that as many people as possible read it, not just for my ego, obviously, that's, that's kind of relatively important to me, but even more so because I think these are the conversations we need to start having at a political level, at a financial level, and just more widely as well. And right now... Maybe we're starting to, but I think there's a lot more of it we could be doing. Terrific material. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to The Capital Cyclist, a podcast from Hosking Partners. Please do get in touch with any questions or queries. We'd love to hear from you.